Martin, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks for having me, Stephen. Uh, it's, it's my pleasure. Maybe you can describe to our uh, viewers and, and listeners what it is that you do. Well, I'm an English professor. I teach at Harvard. Uh, I'm also a writer. And the book we are talking about today is not primarily an academic book, or it mixes an academic subject, the history of a secret language that was spoken in Central Europe with a family story. So it, for me, was a kind of unusual experiment. Tell me about the family connection. Well, so growing up, I knew that my great grandfather, you know, I grew up in Germany. I knew that my grandfather uh, was in the war, uh, work, you know, fighting for the Wehrmacht. He was a relatively young man. Uh, and that's all I knew. And then by chance in the 90s at the great library at Harvard and Widener Library, I was sort of looking for family stuff sort of at random really to procrastinate. I didn't want to write my dissertation. And I found this track, but he became a historian, my grandfather. And I found this absolutely vile anti-Semitic track uh, he had written in the 30s. Uh, and that's absolutely shocking to me. I didn't realize that he had any connections to the Nazis. Um, and what was, it, so it was shocking, but it was surprising that in that tract, he talked about language a lot. He was a historian of names, of family names, genealogies. Uh, and in that tract, he wrote about how Yiddish, the, the particular form of German spoken by many Eastern European Jewish people um, was somehow sullying the purity of the German language. And in, in the course of talking about that, he also talked about a secret language called Rotwelsch, the incomprehensible, the cant of beggars that I knew had become incredibly important for my family. So I was shocked that he attacked that language, sort of a, a language of vagrants. So that, that, dis that chance discovery set off all kinds of researches into the history of my family and into the history of that language. So what can you tell us about this, this language? What distinguishes it from the, the common tongue of the time? What makes it, what makes it interesting to you? Yeah, it, it's a fascinating sort of mixture of languages. And so it was spoken since the Middle Ages uh, in Central Europe, uh, but it wasn't primarily German. It basically used a lot of terms from Hebrew and Yiddish and Romani, the language of Sinti and Roma, uh, and Eastern European languages. So it was this true language mixture spoken by people on the road. So there are all these populations on the road, vagrants and 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 Sinti and Roma and and traveling salesmen and pet Jewish peddlers and and travelers. Uh, and so they concocted that language for themselves. It was a purely spoken language and it was a language that was inaccessible to outsiders, which is why it became known as a kind of secret language. So, yeah, that was going to be my next question. So I, in my head, Dan, I, this isn't a perfect analogy, but I'm sure you've heard of like Cockney rhyming slang. We, that pri that's primarily come out of London. And I think the, the legend behind that is prisoners would use this code to evade the ear of, of guards and things like that. Is there some sort of similarity here? Absolutely. And I do mention the Cockney rhyming slang a little bit. Uh, I, I, I love the, the kind of coding. It, it's, a, it's a way of creating code. It's sort of the code of the street. Uh, Rotwelsch works a little bit like that, but much more extreme. It has, uh, it's basically an entire language that works like Cockney rhyming slang. And it existed for hundreds of years 
uh, from the Middle Ages to the 20th century. And there are bits uh, of it that are still spoken by some populations today. That's interesting. So oh, that was going to be my net. You're getting way ahead of me here, Martin. So is there anywhere we can still hear this spoken in full? Or is it just certain words and phrases have survived? How how extensive is it? Extensive rather is this a, the survival of this language? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when I started to write this book, I thought it was a dead language. I thought the Nazis and you know social changes had basically killed that language because Nazis put a lot of the speakers in concentration camps. Vagrants were among the first populations to end up in concentration camps. And this was a language mostly spoken in sort of German-speaking Central Europe from the Rhine to Prague. Um, and so I thought, that's it. It's a dead language. I'm researching a dead language. But then slowly I realized, no, there are, on the one hand, exactly what you say, Stephen, there are words that actually traveled into back into German. They are part of especially colloquial Germans. And most people don't even realize that they're speaking words from that secret language of thieves, as it was sometimes called. Uh, so it survived that way. But there are also small populations of vagrant people or, uh, uh, or children of former vagrants who are still speaking a special language that's now called Yenish that has a lot of Rotwelsch words in it. So it, it's, it's a survived and morphed in various ways. So it's very moving for me to see that and to establish indirect contact with some of the speakers and be able to kind of ask them about their language uh, because I thought it was dead, but it isn't. Yeah, so I mean, it's clear you have a very special and passionate interest in languages, which is which is great. I just, I suppose, my question is, um, why why is it so important? Do you think for many languages that would be considered perhaps dead or esoteric or historic, why is it important for them to survive? Isn't isn't language sort of an organic process, almost a Darwinian survival of the fittest type thing? Yeah, I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking about it. Sometimes people compare languages to species and uh, you know we are living through a species extinction because of climate change and the same is happening with languages and i talk a little bit in the in the book about attempts to record dying languages and preserve them um i've become a little skeptical of the comparison between languages and species you i think even you're right languages are just sort of in some sense tools of communication but studying this and other language, but especially this language, did remind me of the fact that in somehow in that particular language, a whole view of the world is encapsulated. You know, there are lots of words, for example, for policemen or for being a, a, for being arrested or for different kinds of prisons <laughs> and different kinds of food. So everything that, you know, the life world the everyday experience of people on the road who were often sort of in gray legal areas who were often, you know, chased by the police. And so there is something, there is something like a cultural uh, uh, distillation that happens around a language. And so even if it's more or less impossible to revive dying languages, although people have done it, of course, by creating modern Hebrew, for example, and, and other languages, possible to revive them. But it's certainly important to preserve them and document them because they are incredibly sophisticated cultural achievements that lots of people have created. And in particular, this population that mostly spoke this language, so to find even written sources was incredibly difficult. I mean, just going back to that family aspect, though, I mean, how, how does it make you feel when you you find something like that uh, from somebody connected to you? 
by family and it, it is like a deeply anti-Semitic work. It, it was shocking. And, you know, I uh, belong to a generation of Germans. I was born in 69, where in schools and school books, the Holocaust was, I, I think I was the first generation, more or less, where that felt got a lot of coverage. And so I grew up very much knowing about the Holocaust, grappling with that. So I thought that, you know, sort of my generation of Germans really had sort of got it right about the Holocaust. Uh, and in some ways, I think that was an admirable effort to reckon with Germany's dark past. But in the course of dealing with this family discovery, I realized, you know, to talk about the Holocaust in general or in terms of German history is one thing, and to suddenly realize its connection to your own family is another. And in part because I also realized that while my parents and other relatives didn't know the specific text and didn't know quite how deeply my grandfather was involved with the ideology of the Nazi regime, they certainly had inklings that has come out now and didn't talk about it. So there's also this kind of silence almost in each generation that, um, that is something much more difficult to talk about. So, you know, capital H history is one thing and family history when it really comes home is another. So I think that's, we need to get better at also dealing with that, with the things that happen in our own families. I mean, that, that's interesting. You, you have a very sobering perspective on it. And I hope you don't mind me asking, but I think because you brought it up and you, you have the experience. A lot of us uh, are, are fascinated about how the Holocaust is taught in Germany in schools. I mean, how do you even begin to approach something like that? Do you, do you feel there's a lot of um, almost residual guilt being placed on you for something you had no involvement in? I suppose there's some of that, although, as I said, on that level, I think school education was pretty good in that they, you know, they would say you're not personally guilty. It's not something you've personally done, but that, you know, the country of which you're part of and the institutions of which, in which you live, they have that history. So it is something that you are somehow indirectly have to grapple with and think about and think about the consequences. And so on, on that, as I said, on that sort of general level, I felt like in at least in my school uh, and in my generation, that was done fairly well. But what I realized, I think, in the course of this project, that that's not enough. And we need to personalize that history, which is harder and especially hard now that the last survivors of course are, are dying or most of them have died so we have to find other ways of making bring it really home making it personal uh, and not just talk about it as something that you know happened to these people long ago in black and white photographs that's a great answer martin um how many languages do you speak by the way Oh, you know, I speak quite a few, though, you know, I read more and I'm forgetting others. I, I studied in Italy for a while and I was pretty good at Italian and just spent six weeks back in Italy. And I was shocked how much I had forgotten, but a little bit also started to come back. So it's it's a struggle. I, I you know, taught myself some Yiddish and Hebrew for this book. I, I grew up, you know, speaking English and, and French. Uh, so I which which language do you dream in? Um, you know, it's funny about dreaming. I dream in the language that, that that's spoken around me. 
And, and people always think that, oh, when you dream in a language, it means that you have to know it really well. In my experience, that's actually not the case. When I moved to Italy, I had very little Italian, but I started to dream in Italian and bits in Italian, probably ungrammatical Italian, relatively quickly because your mind just absorbs what's around you. So in my experience, it's actually not a sign that you're, I wish it were, but it's not, but it's a particular, <laughs> so, you know, when I am, as I mostly live in the in the United States, as I have uh, uh, for the last 30 years, I mostly dream in English. But if I'm in a different country surrounded by a language, I sort of know uh, the the switch happens pretty quickly, actually. OK, well, I mean, I'm always fa I'm fascinated with languages. And I, I whenever I speak to somebody with a foreign tongue, I, I want to know some words, I want to know some phrases. And I, I retain a little bit here and there. But because I'm English, I'm so privileged in the, in the sense that I've never had to learn a second language. I, I've been able to travel the world and never had an issue with being understood. And that's that's a huge privilege. I understand that. But in a way, I also sort of feel a bit resentful and shortchanged that I haven't had to learn a, a second language. And, and I think you can appreciate it tells you a lot about your own language when you, you hear how other languages work but, and your own culture as, as well. It's almost like a mirror uh, being held up towards your own experience. How, how old is too late to learn a, a second language fluently? Do you reckon? I'm nearly 40. Have I left it too late? I uh, know you go for it. Go for it, Stephen. You can do it. Okay, I'll, I'll I'll take that encouragement, Martin. I'll get on Duolingo first thing in the morning, and uh, think Spanish would be would be a good start. But in terms of in terms of global languages, I, I know we we'd probably say I think probably Mandarin would be the most spoken language just in terms of the population of China. I'm not sure if that's true. I, I, I sounded confident when I said it, but I'm not sure. Uh, but what what would be the most useful language globally? Would you say? Apart you know, from English. Apart from English. I mean, it, in a way, it depends on what you want to do. I mean, Spanish is great. Of course, it's spoken in many parts of the world. Uh, uh, Mandarin, of course, is spoken by many, many people. Uh, and um, if you learn Chinese characters, which I have not, you know, you, can, you have also some access, not just to the culture of China, but to the whole sort of what's sometimes called the Sinosphere. Uh, uh, and, you know, that's for me the important thing about language is that it's not just a tool of communication that's important, but it's really you get access to a sort of the source code of a whole culture. And that's that's what's so great about learning languages. You really learn a culture and you learn it in a way that I think is hard without uh, learning a language. Yeah. OK. So what's the most interesting thing you've, you've learned about this, this culture and society that used to speak this, this dead language? Because I, th I thought it was fascinating what you were saying. Like, it's not like you've just discovered a language. You've, and at the same time, given what sort of words were prominent, you've also discovered a way of living, the way, the way their society was structured and things like that. What, what are some things that are really interesting about how this language was used? Well, I, I felt like you through this language, Rotwelsch, you really you somehow get a glimpse into this lived experience of the people. As I mentioned, there, there's, there's one source, one text that was actually written by a speaker of that language. And he wrote sort of these little scenes. He's apprehended by the police. The entire written record is basically by the police because the police started to get interested in this <laughs> language, which they thought was sort of a language of thieves, the most people who spoke it weren't actually thieves, but that's how the police thought about it. So there's sort of the, the, the archive, the record of this language is kind of a hostile archive of written by, you know, sort of by the police, uh, though some started to be kind of sympathetic, actually, with the people. There's one policeman in the 19th century who started to study this language. He learned it as a policeman because he felt he needed to 
um, know it, but then he really got into it and started to be fascinated by, by it. So not, not all policemen are alike, uh, but there's one exception. So a in the 19th century, the police apprehend a speaker of the language. Uh, they realize, oh, great, we have another speaker of the secret language. We'll squeeze some more words out of him. This is what would usually happen. You know, let, let, let's make him reveal more words. And, and he did. Uh, but then they realized that they were really lucky because this was most of this, many of the speakers couldn't read or write. They didn't need that for the lang for life of the road. But this fellow um, did know how to read and write because his specialty was forging passports. Uh, so they thought, oh, we've really lucked out. So they locked him in a room and said, write us stuff in Rotwelsch to, to show us how this language is actually spoken. And so he writes these little scenes. He really gets into it, like with stage directions, as if you know, the police are going to perform it the next day. So he writes these scenes of one is a family of vagrants. They're trying to flee from the police to the next jurisdiction. They're, they are stopped by policemen. They code switch between more or less proper German and that secret language. And it's really fascinating to see how, how that happens. So that, that's sort of a rare source that, that gives us a more concrete sense of how that language was actually used. Excellent. I want to I want to pick up on that point in a moment, but I've just seen a question from the chat and Siego uh, knows how to get my attention. And that's just challenging me, basically a bit of beautiful reverse psychology here. But he's, they put Stephen, I know you don't usually ask questions from chat, but I'd love to ask uh, if Martin knows any hacks, tips or tricks to retaining languages for visual learners or just in general. So it's a great question. Yeah, that, that you know, and so I don't know a hack, but maybe the speakers of this language I'm talking about no, did, because in addition, I said it was a mostly spoken or almost entirely spoken language. So people would learn it, not visually, but by, you know, just being around speakers, but they simultaneously uh, evolved the system of what in America is called hobo signs, like these little runes they would carve into the sides of houses and along the way to help each other navigate the life of the road. So for example, stay away from this village or, you know, this village has a, you know, aggressive policeman, he'll arrest you. Or I, I love this. There's sort of a cross means you have to act very piously and then people will give you some handouts. So that they're, they're like these 40, 50, even more visuals. And they're very visual um, that they knew and these speakers knew. So if you had trouble learning this language like uh, uh, the, the person who's asking this language sort of orally, there was this visual language. It's more like icons, emotic, emoticons today that, that they also used and that people didn't recognize. And actually, when I was growing up, uh, my uncle, who was sort of an expert in this language, and I inherited this archive, this is how I was able to write this book from him, he discovered that one of those signs in, uh, you know, on the foundation stone of our house, which explains why so many vagrants when I was growing up would come to our house and ask for a sandwich and water, which my mother would always give them. That's fascinating. And I suppose uh, Martin just give you permission there to draw all over buildings as, a, <laughs> as a, an aid memoir uh, there. But I mean, getting into sort of... Um, controversial waters in, in, in regards to the UK and languages. We, we have a country in the UK called Wales, which I'm sure you're aware of. And how do we, how do we balance that, that 
wanting to retain a language and a culture versus preparing people for today and the world we are in today because yeah. in wales at the moment it, it seems like the majority of people in wales don't actually speak welsh uh, yet welsh is a, a language they have to relearn learn mandatory on their education curriculum which unfortunately can't be spoken or understood anywhere but wales so it, it i mean in one sense it's, it's ensuring that this language and culture and heritage is kept alive but some might say, obviously, that's perhaps wasting an opportunity to learn a language that might be more useful for these children. Where, where do you stand on this whole preserve versus prepare people? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know as much about it as I should, though. I remember when I, I years ago went to Aberystwyth to do some things at the university and people were telling me that they had to take a course in Welsh in order to be able to teach it at Aberystwyth. And so I learned a little bit about this attempt to revive the language. It's, it's difficult. I mean, it seems to have succeeded, as you say, to some extent, though, you know, with a heavy hand from the local government, but that's perhaps necessary. And um, it certainly seems to have helped to preserve um, cultural heritage from what I learned is that when it used to be spoken in more sort of remote rural areas of Wales, now because of the state is sort of encouraging people who want to become state civil, civil servants uh, to learn it, that now it's become sort of more of, uh, it's shifted from rural populations, some of who maybe still speak it, to, to the cities and to sort of people working for, for the government, which is an interesting uh, change and development. Um, I think it's, I think preserving a sense of culture is itself an important and thing. And it's maybe not immediately useful, right? You can't, you, you know, you can't use it to talk to your supplier in, in Beijing, uh, but to have a, robust sense of your own cultural heritage, I think that that can be important for self-confidence, for your sense of being in the world. So, so I would, in principle, be always in favor of attempts to preserve a cultural heritage, how to do it, uh, whether with lots of mandates and forcing people to do it is the best way, I don't know. That's a great answer. And uh, just for the record, as somebody who likes to visit Wales a lot, I love their beautiful country and amazing language. Just want to get that on record. <laughs> but how do you feel about, I mean, because the, the language that you focused on is obviously, um, it's an adaptation, it's a chop and change of certain other uh, distinguished languages. So there is an aspect there almost of desecration. And we, we, we see a lot of that in the modern era and people will invent new words all the time, abbreviate change spellings, you know, colloquialisms, things like that. How do you feel about, you know, correct grammar and pronunciation with languages? That kind of thing bother you or does it fascinate you to see how they adapt? I, I think it's the latter. Now, of course, when you learn languages, you spend a lot of time trying to get it right. At least I do and a lot of people do. So it's not, I'm not saying grammar is terrible or whatever, but in general, I think attempts to police languages, to keep them pure, to keep them from changing, A, they always fail and they also backfire because they preserve, they keep languages, people use languages in ways that is useful to them. And, you know, when we just talked about Wales, you yourself talked about, you know, is it really useful? How useful is it? And so I think you, we need to be flexible and different people and different subgroups need 
need to adapt languages. So I'm for that. And I think if I was always, I think, tending in that direction, but, you know, to come back to my grandfather for a moment, reading his horrible attempt to keep Germany, German pure and keep those intrusions from the outside, quote unquote, out, just really so clear that that was part of a terrible political program. It didn't work. It unleashed was part of a un, unspeakable violence. Now, I'm not saying everyone who, is, you know, wants to keep a colloquialism out of a language is a Nazi. I'm not saying that, but <laughs> I, I, I just think the idea of purity when it comes to languages is misguided. And English is the best example of that. It's a language that's composed of so many other languages, you know, from French, Latin you know, Anglo-Saxon uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. And then, you know, in over the course of the last 500 years, many other languages as well. So it's a perfect example that it's a great language with a huge vocabulary, in part because it wasn't policed the way, let's say, French was by the Académie Française. So I think Eng English is actually a great example of the advantages of letting a language evolve uh, naturally, if you will. Yeah, and I suppose the era we live in, you know, the the, the way technology is moving, it sort of democratised the process of learning another language. I, just, I joked about Duolingo before, but I, I imagine a lot of people are, you know, are very competent in certain languages thanks to having that that tool. And I'm, I'm wondering as well, I mean, we may get to a point now we're already seeing a lot of this with sort of uh, camera phones where you can, you know, translate things quite easily in the palm of your hand. It's not entirely you know, unthinkable or science fiction to be able to think you may be able to wear, a, you know, like an earbud, like an iPod one day, and that'll hear the native tongue of somebody and translate it in your ear. That does seem like it's in the post in terms of communication. Is that going to devalue culture a little bit or our ability to understand each other, not not knowing these languages? Yeah, I mean, I it's, it's not so much the not knowing that I worry. I mean, I think it's a great development if that happened. I think that would be an more or less unmitigated good. The one question I have is, you know, we both spoke about how, how, how important it is to try to learn, or if you learn a foreign language, if you really learn it, you learn about the culture. And if you just rely on a gadget to translate, you don't, you don't experience that. Um, so it's, it's going to be a question of convenience on the one hand and Will it be a disincentive for people to actually go to the trouble of learning languages? And I hope that people still would, because actually learning a language rather than relying on translations, even if it's very convenient, um, it's just a different thing. You don't really learn a culture. You get the, tra the culture in translation. And that, you know, that's great if that's available, but it's not the same thing. I suppose a, a nice fun thing maybe to end on would be, I mean, can you think, and I hope I'm not putting you on the spot here, but maybe a German expression or an idiom or something you've learned in a different language that when that, you know, is in common usage, but when translated literally makes absolutely zero sense in your tongue and it is far, far more amusing for it. So my favorite one is actually one that even made it into English and that's to be in a pickle. You know, which means to be in sort of a tough stuff spot. But if you think about it, it, makes no sense. A pickle, that's that's a delicious piece of food. Why that would that be, you know, in a tough spot? So there's a theory, which I believe that it actually comes from this secret language I just mentioned, where in that language, if you say you're being in a tough time, sounds like 
the German version of being in a pickle. So it was misunderstood, translated into that idiom. And then that strange idiom even made it into English. So even you, Stephen, have been speaking Rotwelsch without realizing it. There we go. So I've, I've learned a bit of a, a second language already. I'm, I'm well on my way. Uh, but Martin, this has been fascinating uh, to me. I, I, I love learning more about you know different languages and how they've evolved over time and how they translate and what you can learn about about people from it. Uh, so thank you for speaking to me. Um, maybe you could let people know a bit more about where they can find uh, more of your writing. So the, the book we've been talking about is called The Language of Thieves. Uh, came out with Granta in, in the UK and Norton in the US. And you can find that on my website, martinpuckner.com, uh, and, uh, or just Google. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for speaking to me. Thank you, Stephen. Take care.